Good evening, everyone. Good evening, everyone. We've just sung to the living God, we should be alive. It's a great joy to come and again worship with you this evening. Thank you for Gary and the team for leading us. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Luke chapter 17. Luke 17. I'm told, I'm not superstitious, but I'm told bad things happen in three. Uh, one, Carl is sick. Carl is meant to preach, and so Carl is not preaching. That's bad. Uh, second, bad for you is you're stuck with me again. Uh, and thirdly, I'm not sure how bad this is, but I've chosen a difficult text for us. Uh, let me tell you a story. A few years ago, I preached this text at a church I preached before, and I wasn't asked back afterwards, so I'm waiting for the emails on Monday morning or Tuesday morning, please. Uh, but let's look at this passage. Um, I trust that although it's a difficult text, God would see fit to correct us through it and draw us again to Christ with greater urgency. Uh, before we read, I do want you to see something of the text. Although my focus will be one verse, verse 32, I think it's important to understand how this passage fits together. You'll see in verse 20 to 21, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. Uh, they have this desire, and they ask about the coming kingdom. And Jesus says to them that the kingdom is not coming in ways that can be observed. Why? Because the kingdom of God, in one sense, is already here. It's there in Him. He's present. It's in front of them, in Him. But in verse 22 to 23, Jesus shifts and He talks to His disciples, and they too have certain desires. He knows that when he leaves, they will long to see him again. They will long to be with their Savior. And so he knows that they will be tempted by false teachers who will tell them, no, the Messiah is here, but he's not. And so there will be false teachers that would lead them astray. And so he corrects them to have the right desires, the right affections. And in verse 24 to 37, Jesus talks about the coming judgment particularly the state of the world when he returns, namely that the world will be, be preoccupied with its own desires, its own worldly delights. He uses the example of Noah and Lot. Both men witnessed judgment, one by water, the other by fire. Both men witnessed how others around them were ignoring God and were rather consumed with their own pursuits. And the point to note in this section is that Jesus is discussing the second coming so that he would warn us against worldly desires. And so with that in mind, and hopefully that makes sense, uh, let's look at our passage. I'm going to read from verse 20 to 37, uh, but my focus will be verse 32. Uh, this is God's word. Let's hear it together. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in the ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And he said to the disciples, the days are coming when, we, when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there, or look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. 
just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting, building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not return back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, Where, Lord? He said to them, Where the corpse is there, the vultures will gather. Only so far in the reading of God's word, may he reform our lives to its truth. Uh, will you pray with me again as we ask the Lord to help us with this text? Heavenly Father, we thank you that we could have just sang that beautiful song that you are indeed that enthroned king who deserves an everlasting amount of hallelujahs, praise and worship. Truly you are deserving of this praise. Surely you are deserving of our worship. Yet we recognize, as this passage tells us, it's so easy to lose sight of you. To so easily lose sight of our great and glorious, majestic King. And so we pray, Lord, would you not help us now to, to see you, to, to see the, the urgency of seeing you, of looking to you of resting in you and trusting in you and serving you. Would you not do this even now as we consider this passage? Would you not give us grace in our weakness? Provide us with your strength to see and understand, to respond and to rejoice in you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. How does your tomorrow shape your today? How does your future shape your present? I think all of us realize that certain events in the future, particularly events that are written in stone, in many ways affect our presence, our present. If you have a test tomorrow, I'm pretty sure you'll study today to be ready. If you have a deadline at the end of the week, I'm pretty sure you'll work throughout the week to be ready, to be prepared. See, we understand that our future in many ways impacts our presence. It's common sense, after all. Well, the Bible understands this. This common sense actually makes nowhere greater sense than when it comes to the second coming of the Lord Jesus. Uh, we might not know when He comes, but we know that He will return. And the Bible is abundantly clear. Jesus will come again to judge the living and the dead. He will come to conquer and overthrow the nations. He will come to, to give eternal life to some, but eternal death and separation to others. And, and the question for us, for every single one of us, is are we ready? Are you ready in the present 
for what lies ahead in the future. And this is where our passage comes in. Because in our passage, Jesus is warning us against being unprepared. He's warning us against setting our desires on the here and now and thinking that now is all that there is. He's warning us against living so focused on on this world that we're unprepared for the one to come. And realize Jesus, as the Son of God, as wisdom incarnate, warns us by giving us an example. And who's that example? Look at verse 32. Remember Lot's wife. That's interesting, right? We're never told explicitly to remember Hannah or Mary or any other godly saint. No, we're told to remember Lot's wife. And we don't even have her name. We just know it's Lot's wife. And Jesus is saying, in light of the certain future to come, in in light of the coming judgment, Jesus commands you and me, remember her. Dear friends, we're given a divine instruction here. We're given a divine instruction to think about and reflect upon and learn from Lot's wife so that we would not follow in Lot's footsteps or Lot's wife's footsteps. And this evening, if I want us to be obedient to Christ, and I want us to remember Lot's wife, three things to remember about her, and I must give credit where credit is due. I'm following more or less an outline by J.C. Ryle, who wrote a, a, or preached a well-known sermon on this. Uh, this text is a favorite in reform circles because of Ryle and Spurgeon. But, but here's the first thing I want you to see, and that is this, remember her privileges. Remember her privileges. Now, what were those privileges? Well, you need to realize that she experienced God's grace in abundance. Lot's wife had tasted the goodness and the grace of God in various ways. God blessed her with material blessings, with material prosperity. Remember, Lot was a wealthy man. The many years alongside Abraham led to great wealth and prosperity for him and his family. And the reason, remember, Lot and and Abraham separated was because both men had grown so materially prosperous that there wasn't enough land to sustain both of them. And so Lot separated from Abraham and moved to the area of Sodom as a wealthy man with great prosperity. And so Lot's wife would have witnessed God's grace in that. She would have seen all her needs met, all her wants and desires provided for. She knew something of material prosperity. But not just that, God blessed her with a godly family. Now, if you read Genesis, you don't get a very nice image of Lot. He's a very flawed man. But we need to remember 2 Peter 2.7 says, says that he's actually a righteous man. He's a man of faith. And so although a flawed man, he was a godly example to his wife, a, a man of faith for my godly family. And not just that, she had Abraham, the, the father of the faith, great Abraham as her uncle. She would have witnessed God's grace and blessings through him. She would have heard about God calling him out of the Earl of Chaldees and giving him great blessings and promises of blessings. She would have seen how God rescued him again and again, how God used him to, to conquer the, the Canaanite kings. She would have been present as they prayed to God, him and Lot, how they built altars to the living God. See, Lot's wife was blessed with a godly family. 
who experienced and testified to God's grace and glory. But perhaps greater still, she was blessed with the way of salvation. Perhaps the greatest display of God's grace is seen in that He provides a way of salvation for this family. Remember, God had decided to, to pour out His wrath on Sodom. And so God sent two angels into the city to rescue this family. And so in the face of impending doom, God leads this family out. Out of the entire city, they were warned of this judgment. And of the entire city, they were the ones led to safety. They were the ones given a way of salvation. See, Lot and his family and his wife were shown grace upon grace. God provided a way of salvation from the coming wrath. We would do well then to see that Lot's wife was someone who had many privileges. She had many blessings. She enjoyed much of God's grace. Now, what's the point? Why remember her privileges? Simply this, dear friends, it is possible to be wealthy and prosperous. It is possible to be from a godly family and have godly examples all around you. It's possible to hear about the coming judgment and have a way of escape. It's possible to see and experience the grace of God and still come under condemnation. Like Lot's wife, it's possible for us to lap up the blessings of God and still not know God. Uh, it's possible for us, like Lot, to be almost saved. And so why must we remember Lot's wife? Because her example teaches us that receiving the blessings of God is no guarantee that you'll be saved in the coming judgment. It's very, very possible for a person to enjoy the blessings of God, to lap it in, in abundance, and still be swept away by God's wrath. In fact, in our passage, Jesus says when he returns, that will be true of the majority of people. Just as in Noah's days and Lot's days, people will, will be busy eating and drinking and marrying. They will buy and plant and sell. They will live their best lives now. They will enjoy the blessings of God without any thought given to God. Dear friends, it's possible to enjoy the blessings of God and be lost. And what we need to realize is that God's blessings, God's graces, God's gifts that He lavishes upon us are actually meant to draw us closer to God, not to distract us from Him. They're meant to lead us to, to renewed faith in Him, to, to greater repentance when we sin against Him. It's meant to fill our hearts with joy in the giver of our gifts, with gratitude. And, and the sad reality is, according to Jesus, most people, when He returns, will not be closer to God. They will not be marked by faith or repentance. They will not be marked by hearts that are filled with godliness and joy in God. They will be a people who enjoy the blessings of God with no thought given to God. One of the passages that bothers me and challenges me, and I'm giving it to you to bother you tonight, Romans 2, 4 to five, it's a passage that God has often convicted me with sin. 
Do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. See, the reason why so many people enjoy God's blessings without God is because ultimately they have impenitent, unbelieving, hardened hearts. And so for us here this evening, the question is, what are you doing with God's blessings? What are you doing with the privileges and the graces that God has lavished on you? For those of you who are healthy, wealthy, and prosperous, for those of you who are from godly families, you have godly examples all around you. For those of you who have heard the good news of salvation, you know the coming wrath is ahead. For those of you who have enjoyed the blessings and graces of God, what are you doing with it? Are those blessings producing greater faith, greater love for Him, greater repentance, greater obedience, greater joy in God as God, as the giver of every good gift? Or are those blessings being enjoyed without God? This world and its delights. Remember Lot's wife, Jesus says. Remember her privileges, it's possible to enjoy the blessings of God and still come under the wrath of God. So secondly, not just remember her privileges, but we would do well to remember her problem. In Genesis 19, uh, when Lot and his family are led to safety, they are explicitly told, do not stop and do not look back. And of course, we know the story. She disobeys that command. She stops she looks back, and she's turned into a pillar of salt. Wait a minute, that's a bit harsh. One look, and she's eternally condemned, and she's actually given to us as a bad example in Scripture, just for a look. May I suggest to you, in that simple, almost insignificant look, there was a heart that lingered and longed for this world. Her problem wasn't just her disobedience, it was her worldliness. In fact, that's how Jesus interprets her. Look again in Luke 17, verse 31. Look at the divine interpretation of Lot's wife that Jesus gives us. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, the one who is in the field not turn back. Then our text, verse 32 Remember Lot's wife. She Jesus is saying that Lot's wife is an example of someone that in the face of judgment is more concerned about the things of this world. He is saying that Lot's wife is an example of someone whose desires and affections has been ensnared by worldliness, by all the delights and the pleasures of home in this world. And that's why in verse 33, he adds this divine comment to her example. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life will keep it. 
In this context, what that means is this. Whoever cares more for the here and now, for whoever delights more in the delights of this world, whose heart runs after it rather than God, that person will lose everything. Jesus is telling us, remember Lot's wife. Remember the problem of worldliness and worldly desires. J.C. Roper makes this comment, though she fled with her husband, she had left her heart behind her. Dear friends, where is your heart? Where is your heart this evening? Jesus says, where your heart is, there is your treasure. And her treasure, her desire, was the things of this world. And so, why remember Lot's wife? Why remember her sin, her worldliness? Because, beloved, understand this worldliness will ruin your soul. Like a ship that slowly takes on more and more water and eventually sinks into the dark depths of the ocean, so to a person who slowly but surely takes on more of this world, more of its delights, more of its ideas, more of its virtues, they will sink deeper and deeper into the depths of the despair that awaits this world. See, worldliness will shipwreck your faith. It will ruin your heart, your soul, especially once you've enjoyed the blessings of God. I mean, have we not seen this? If you've been in church for any long period, you've seen this. We've seen people come through Sunday school, being taught the Word of God, yet they grow up and they don't know God. One of the saddest ministries I've ever been involved in is the seniors' ministry. Not because it's difficult to be with them, no, it's a delight. But their hearts always break for their children who were raised in the church yet walk as unbelievers. Just visit with seniors. Just visit with those whose children were raised in the church. And you'll understand. We've seen this. We've seen this as I've seen this as a young adult. I've seen people who I served in ministry with in youth groups. I've seen people I've baptized even walk with the Lord, yet stop. We've seen mature believers, once regular, once deacons, once even elders, and they turn away. For a season, they seemed right. They seemed like Christians. They were involved. They served in the life of the church. All of a sudden, their love grows cold. All of a sudden, they become critical of this or that person, that ministry. All of a sudden, they stop attending. All of a sudden, they believe falsehoods. All of a sudden, they actually boast in sin. And all of a not so sudden, actually, they turn out to be unbelievers. Dear Christian brother, sister, know this. Understand this worldliness is not to be entertained. The desire for this world and its pursuits will corrupt, it will ruin, and will eventually destroy. And be very careful. Worldliness starts, as with Lot's wife, with a small glance. A small glance. A small glance becomes a desire. A desire settled becomes action. Action settled becomes a habit. And next thing you know, you're a pillar of salt inside. Your, your heart is dead in its sin. Your conscience is seared. And you no longer know God. You no longer enjoy Him. 
and delight in Him. The Bible is abundantly clear. You cannot love God and this world. James 4, verse 4, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. First John 2.15, do not love the world or the things that are in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So you cannot love God and this world. It's one or the other. I like this quote by Calvin. Christ is little esteemed by us when the admiration of worldly glory lays hold on us. Dear friends, has worldly glory laid hold on your heart? Don't be like those in Noah's day and Lot's day who were carried away by worldly glories and worldly pursuits and eventually carried away by God's wrath. But, but the question to really ask ourselves is this, how do I know if I've been captured by worldliness? How do I know if I'm being carried away by worldly pursuits and ensnared by worldly desires? Well, let's ask ourselves a few questions. Do we value the things of God still? Do you value God and do you think upon God and His precepts, His promises? Do you delight in God's Word to know about Him? Do you delight in, in prayer to commune with God in simple prayer even? Do you rejoice in God's people? Is it a delight to be among them? Do you think about God in your day-in, day-out activities? Or are you just thinking about this world, the next project, the next joy, the next adventure? Are you preoccupied with worldly pursuits and are you esteeming worldly values and desires? Or let me ask you this way, in your role as a mother or father perhaps, or a husband and a wife, in your career as a student or teacher or, or businessman, in your relationships as with your friends and family and colleagues, how much influence does God have? How much time is given to, to Him? See, if God and His will and His word have no influence, then I don't think it would be wrong to say that either you are very close to being ensnared by worldliness, or you have been ensnared by worldliness. And so Jesus says, remember Lot's wife. Remember the problem of worldliness. Remember the, how easy it is for you to actually start loving these things more. Uh, to quote Ryle again in his sermon on this text, he says, there are thousands of baptized people in our churches who are enamored against or armored against immorality and infidelity, and it fall victims to the love of the world. There are thousands who run well for a season and seem to be on their way to heaven, but by and by give up the race and turn their backs on Christ altogether. And what has stopped them? Have they found the Bible not true? Have they found the Lord Jesus failed to keep his word? No, not at all, but they have been caught by the epidemic disease. They have been affected with the love of this world. And so, dear friends, dear Church of God, remember Lot's wife. Remember her privileges, but also remember the problem of worldliness. If that was a downer, thirdly, remember her punishment. 
Remember her punishment, Lot's wife disobeyed God. She desired the world, and therefore, as a result, she suffered the fate of the world as she was punished for her sin. And realize, beloved, that's the outcome of all disobedience. That's the outcome of all worldly desires. The fate of this world will be your fate. In Noah's days, those who lived for themselves and this world were suddenly swept away by the floods of God's wrath. In Lot's day, those who lived for themselves and this world were suddenly burned up by the fire of God's wrath. And make know this, Jesus abundantly is clear in the day of the Lord. In the day of his return, those who live for themselves and this world will suddenly be carried away by his wrath. Note a few things about the second coming of Christ. The day of judgment will be sudden. It will be sudden. There will be no time to run and prepare. There will be no time to to get your house in order. There will be no time to repent. No, your soul will be required of you. Consider 1 Thessalonians 5, 2-3. Paul says, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. And also the day of judgment will be shameful. All our evil deeds, all evil motives will be exposed, all pretense, all hypocrisy will be washed away. All of who you are and all of what you've done will be exposed as you stand naked before a holy God. Ecclesiastes 12, 14, For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. At 2 Corinthians 5, 10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is his due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. See, when Christ returns and he comes to judge the living and the dead, when he brings to light that which was in darkness, when he comes to expose our hearts, the worldling, the lover of this world will be, for him there will be a day of shame. But lastly, the day of judgment will bring separation. Family and friends, husbands and wives, brothers and sisters, will all be separated from one another on that day. It won't matter if you had Christian parents, Christian friends. It won't matter if you were religious or not. It won't matter if you were in Sunday school. What will matter is, did you belong and do you belong to Jesus? Are you one of his sheep? Matthew 25, 31, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne before him. He will gather all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd ship separates the sheep from the goats. See, some goats will be separated from God's presence into eternal ruin. But those who belong to the shepherd, they will enter into his joyful presence, into his loving arms. And so in light of all of this, in light of the certain future to come, in light of the coming judgment, Jesus commands us, Remember Lot's wife. Remember her abundant blessings, her privileges. Remember the problem of worldliness. And remember her unfortunate end, her punishment. Now, I know what you're thinking. Shane, that's heavy. Where is the encouragement? Where is the grace in all of this? 
Uh, let me remind you who is telling you to remember Lot's wife. It's not me, it's Jesus. It's in the text. He says, remember Lot's wife. Just, I will just remind you of that. The person telling you this is not some uncaring, unremoved judge. Yes, Jesus is the judge who is to come. But more importantly, he's the Savior who has come. The one who says, remember Lot's wife, is the one who isn't doing this out of vindictive anger. No, he's the one who cares for your soul, and so he's concerned for the state of your soul. He doesn't want you to love this world and miss out on him. He's saying, remember Lot's life so that you learn from her example, so that you do not follow her footsteps, so that you do not turn back from the way of salvation. And what is that way of salvation? It's him. It's the king who has come. Do you remember how verse 20 started? It started with a discussion about the kingdom of God, and Jesus boldly declares in verse 21, Behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. What does that mean? It means the king has come. The king has arrived, and that king is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the king who has come, and he has made a crown of thorns, his, his crown. He is the one who has made the cross his throne. And upon his throne, he entered into darkness that we would have light. He endured the shame of our sin so that we would be clothed with his righteousness. He endured every drop of God's wrath so that we would drink upon the blessings of God. He died so that we would live. See, he's not vindictive here. He wants us. And so he says, remember Lot's wife. And don't forget me. See, if you want to avoid the coming wrath, if you want to be safe from worldliness, then you need to flee to this king. This king who has conquered the wrath of God, who has settled your sin. We might not have an ark like Noah. We might not have a city of refuge like Lot. But we have something far greater. We have King Jesus. And if you've sinned, know this. If you have loved this world, know this. If you have lived for self, know this. There is a lifeboat from the wrath to come. There is a city of refuge in the impending flame. There is a king who shelters you in his kingdom from the wrath that is awaiting us. And so, dear friends, dear church, rest in Jesus by faith. Repent of all worldly desires that you've placed above Him, perhaps. Rely on His finished work for your justification, for acceptance, for your forgiveness. Return daily to His cross in obedience and love as one who gave Himself for you. And run to him daily as your supreme delight, as your supreme joy. Dear friends, it makes no sense. It makes no sense whatsoever to run after this world at the expense of coming to Christ as your king. As someone has once said, to forsake Christ for the world is to leave a treasure for a trifle, eternity for a moment, and reality for a shadow. Let us therefore not be like Lot's wife. Let's remember her example. Let's remember her as she made this world her priority and focus. 
And let us instead seek first the kingdom of God. Let us seek first the reign and rule and righteousness of Christ. Let's make him our king. And, and what's the outcome of that? What's the end goal of making Christ your king? Matthew 6, 33. All these things will be added to you. All these desires that you have. All these things that you need. All these things that you want. All of those things will be yours, but only as they're in Christ. In Jesus, we have far more this world can offer he is the pearl of great price, and therefore make him your prize. Make him your priority. Make him your portion, and keep him that. Keep him your prize. Keep him your priority. Keep him that portion that is far better than anything else this world gives. I'm pretty sure I've used this illustration before, and if you've heard it before, forgive me. Uh, but Adolf Friedrich Menzel was a German painter and artist from the 1800s, and he painted a piece called Frederick's Great Address to His Generals. And in this painting, it's on the screen, you see Frederick's speech to his generals uh, in December 1757 after the Se or during the Seven Years' War, and it was after the, or before their famous battle against the Austrians. And what's interesting about this monumental painting is that the majority of the painting is done. Almost all the scenery is there. Almost all the generals are painted. But the problem is, Frederick isn't there. The, the central figure who, who leads in this war, who guides and protects and leads the people to victory is left out. I would suggest to you that many Christians, unfortunately, their Christianity is like this painting. Almost everything else is there. The delights of this world, friends, family, pursuits, adventures, wealth, prosperity, blessings. Everything else is there except Christ. Except His rule and His reign and His righteousness in your life. And so, beloved, let us be careful of worldliness. Let us remember Lot's wife, her privileges, her problem of worldliness, her unfortunate punishment. But let us also remember our King, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has come to save us, and He's coming again to, to take us into glory so that we would sing to His praise, enjoy even greater blessings in Him, and know the sweet countenance of his presence for all eternity. And so may we be a people who are already in the present for what lies ahead of us. Will you pray with me? Father, we do want to thank you for your word and thank you for every aspect of your word. It would perhaps be easy to just look at the comforting sections and the great promises. Yet alongside your promises, you've put these warnings. Alongside the precepts, you've given us these examples. And we pray that you'd have a, give us ears that hear, eyes that see, and that we would take to heart how serious this is. It's not just a case of 
enjoying this world, but a case of missing out on Christ. And so we pray, dear Lord, help us to have our affections firmly set on Him as that pearl of great price, that hidden treasure for which we sell everything in order to gain Him. Would you not help us this evening? Would you not make that the desire of every single person here this evening? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.